That's What She Said is presented by Academy Sports and Outdoors. The Peabody and Emmy Award-winning 30 for 30 film series presents Once Upon a Time in Queens, a four-part documentary event about the city, the swagger, and the wild ride of the 1986 Mets. This documentary explores the epic tale of one of baseball's most dominant and iconoclastic teams and their legendary World Series comeback. Hear from former Mets players and fans, including Daryl Strawberry, Keith Hernandez, Bill Burr, Cindy Lauper, and more. All four parts of Once Upon a Time in Queens are available to stream on ESPN Plus and the ESPN app right now. Plus, Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max on ESPN Radio Monday through Friday from 6 to 10 a.m. Eastern, bringing you the insights from former number one pick in the NFL draft, Keyshawn Johnson, along with number two pick in the NBA draft, Jay Williams, and host Max Kellerman on the latest news from the NFL and college football. Tune in to hear them debate the biggest and most pressing topics. That's Keyshawn, J. Will, and Max on ESPN Radio and ESPN News, or listen to the podcast of the show. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hey, everybody. We'll be back with a new episode next week, but I did take this week off to go on a quick mini vacay to Mexico to celebrate the 40th birthday of one of my best friends, Kylie. And I thought it was the perfect time to rerun one of my favorite episodes from a few years ago. John Marcoux, who's a corporate lawyer turned founder of 105F Hot Yoga and also is a speaker on mindfulness, positivity, and the power of gratitude. And I met John a few years ago through the birthday girl, Kylie, because she's a hot yoga and Pilates teacher for 105F. She runs their retreats and their teacher trainings and stuff too. And a couple years ago when she heard I was just starting to learn about neuroplasticity and the power and ability to take control of how we react to situations, she said I had to go check out one of John's talks, which led to this conversation that you're about to hear. And John talks about being a corporate lawyer who recognized sort of the mental health struggles of so many other successful lawyers and business people around him. And he decided he wanted to learn how to help them and himself. Um, couldn't understand how people could be successful and thriving in so many ways work-wise and then be deeply unhappy at the same time. So um, I wanted to run this one back because it came at the beginning of my fascination and regular listeners are, are now familiar with this. You know how much I mention like life-changing uh, when I started to research neuroplasticity and understand just how powerful gratitude can be in helping not just lessen anxiety and depression, jealousy, comparisons to others, all that stuff, but actually increase your happiness and satisfaction with life, keep you physically healthy, stave off illness. There are so many benefits to training your brain, literally, to pivot to the positive, to be grateful for all the things that you see. As one of my favorite former podcast guests, uh, Dr. Lori Santos, the professor of happiness at Yale said, if you don't like the word gratitude, just think of things that delight you. That could be you're walking down the street and you love someone's shirt. Their shirt is delightful. It could be an ice cream cone that you eat. It could be a sunset that you watch. Understanding and noticing will make your body and your brain notice and understand more and more often until you're walking around in the world and the way you see everything is different. Everything is a delight. And when you face something difficult, your brain will naturally pivot and try to find the good in it, or at least find a way to escape getting too sucked in to the negativity. I'll tell you, during the early days of COVID shutdown last year, I consistently found my brain seeking out positives without me even trying. Grateful for a safe place to stay, a house big enough to not, you know, drive my husband crazy, dogs to snuggle with, healthy family and friends, a job I could do mostly from home. Like I didn't even have to try to avoid negativity or fear or disappointment because years of training my brain and creating those neural bridges to positivity had made that my natural response to adversity without even trying. So if you're rolling your eyes right now, you are just the right person to listen to this. I promise that listening to John talk about it will change your perspective. So enjoy it. I'm going to go sleep off the tropical drinks, tacos, cenote dives, uh, life-changing Rosa Negra Cancun dance party vibes that um, are probably slightly audible in my voice. 
but I had a good time. And you are too uh, when you listen to this podcast. So enjoy it. That's what she said. My guest today is John Marku. He's an expert on this stuff. He is a lawyer who is also a yoga studio owner and a speaker and who's done a ton of research into the ways that how our brains work, particularly now when we're being barraged with information at all times, um, needs to be studied a little bit better, how our brains react to this stuff and how we can change our reactions. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Here's that conversation. That's what she said. Happy to welcome to the pod today, John Marku a lawyer who's also a yogi, a speaker, and a yoga studio owner. Thanks for making some time, John. I'm excited to talk. Oh, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Sarah. So I want to start with your background, which um, seems pretty fitting for a lawyer. You went to William & Mary, computer science major, graduated from Cornell Law School. Did you immediately go into the regular lawyer rat race of joining a firm and working your way up? Straight to the heart of Manhattan, New York. Oh, boy. Okay. So practices in, in New York and Miami and Dallas. Um, and what was your specialty in law? I had a computer science degree, so I was in the intellectual property world. And is that where you continue to work? It is. It is. It's okay, interesting. So, yeah. So so not the, not the typical sort of brain that we would expect to also find a passion in yoga, but we'll get to that. So you're in Dallas. And uh, you're with a friend who's also on the corporate side of things. What inspired you to take a Bikram yoga class in the first place? One of my colleagues uh, told me she took a class uh, the day before, and it was so damn hot. And I had heard about hot yoga and how good it was. And I asked her where it was, and she said, you know what? I don't even know. When I left there, I didn't even know my own name. <laughs> <laughs> and you were inspired by this and not terrified? Uh, both. And I, I was still young enough and brash enough to think, oh, I'm a good athlete. And I just got humiliated in the room. I couldn't do anything. I, I, I couldn't take the heat. I couldn't do the basic poses. My soccer hamstrings were saying, uh-uh. And uh, when I left the room, I thought, I'm never coming back. But then when my heart stopped thumping, I realized I have not felt that stress-free in six years. Wow. And how long ago was this? Now this was 15 years? It's 2000, so it's uh, almost yeah. uh, 17, 18 years ago. Wow. Okay. And this was – so now we're so used to seeing hot yoga studios and Bikram everywhere, but this was um, not as widespread back then. So you – No. no. You, there were maybe three really dozen studios. Right. Yeah, three, three dozen studios in the world, and they were all on the coast. There wasn't much going on. Uh, wow. In, you know. So you start early. going regularly just for your own, you know, benefits, health benefits, mental benefits. How do you go from that, which I think we can all relate to, to deciding that you want to turn it into a business? Well, my pride said, I'm coming back here until I can actually stand and try the poses because I was taking a knee. <laughs> and in three weeks, uh, it seemed slow and glacial, but in three weeks, I lost 20 pounds. My spine straightened up. I, I grew a half of an inch. And when I showed up at work, I thought, mm, I don't think I should be doing this for a living. Huh. And so I uh, put together a business plan and uh, bolted to uh, yoga training out in Los Angeles. And then uh, after training, beelined it to Chicago. There was no hot yoga in Chicago in 2001. And there's a difference between Bikram and just hot, right? There's studios that prefer the room to be hot, but Bikram is the specific number of poses done the same every class repeatedly. Um, and the goal is then to perfect each of those poses. And there's a big difference there, I think, in terms of uh, also how difficult it can be. Right. Well, there are, other, there are plenty of other hot yogas. Very few turn the heat up to 105 degrees Fahrenheit. So there's a distinction there. And, uh, yes, the pose is a sequence. So you're, it's as if you're a singer and performing scales before a performance. Doing the uh, Bikram sequence over and over and over, you take yourself through the alphabet of the body. Yeah. So you went to the, the nine-week teacher training, um, and your, your teacher for that was extremely well-known. But gold chains, Rolls Royces, um, in reading that, I'm sort of finding that at odds with what I would expect from a yogi. Did you buy into that combination of the mindfulness practice of yoga and this, this guy living so lavishly? Yes and no. I mean, he's crazy. I mean, we could talk all about that. But when it comes right. to training, when it comes to training people to teach, he spent the nine weeks uh, in a sort of old traditional way of uh, not only uh, 
taking us through and inducing us to deeper states of practice and meditation, but also constantly challenging that and bothering us and provoking us and seeing where he, and as we once explained, I'm going to try and steal your peace. If I Mm. steal it, you lose. So it's almost like drill sergeant kind of stuff, uh, breaking you down in the army. Yeah, absolutely. So you do the teacher training, you come to Chicago because you say Chicago doesn't have a Bikram studio yet. And I'm interested, you know, I actually met you through my friend Kylie, who was a corporate consultant, decided to leave that world behind, travel the world teaching yoga, and then come back to teach and help run your studios. She kind of decided to leave corporate world behind, realizing that this was more her passion. In the years since you opened the studio, you're obviously still, you know, practicing law, so you haven't totally left that behind. But what have you learned about the idea of leaving maybe the thing that you had worked towards your whole life for something completely different? Well, I never left it. I just left my preconceived notion of how it was to happen. I thought I had to put on a suit, jam the tie up to my neck, and go work incredible hours and hopefully not die of a heart attack early and make a lot of money and win a lot of cases, yada, 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 yada. And that's not what it was. So after I left, I ended up having great adventures helping people out on various legal things and not even really charging them. You know, when money gets in the way, you know, you become a professional and there are certain there's a certain adversarial expectation between the client and lawyer. I just wanted to help people and and do right and run my businesses. And it seemed to work out pretty well for a while, but now it's morphed into something special. And I'm, I'm to use a sports analogy. I'm a ninth inning relief pitcher for an entertainment law firm. So when they're preparing (laughs) their papers for court, it's important that those papers read well, not just for the judge and his clerks, but also for Entertainment Tonight, Variety Magazine, uh, uh, TMZ. And so what I do is because I'm in yoga world and I'm not as burdened with them and my logic is not as suppressed as theirs is, uh, I can be a little creative and shine the, the documents up so they read well for all audiences. And that's how I practice law now, it's here and there. What an interesting gig. I did not know that existed. <laughs> <laughs> me neither. Me neither. But I, um, I started I started helping somebody out, and every time I changed the uh, front page to read better, whatever I wrote ended up as the headline to the Hollywood Reporter. Hmm. And so he gave me three, you know, he basically asked for three favors in a month or so. And when he got to the front page three times in a row, and he said, okay, wait a minute, this is valuable. You need to work. You need to get right. paid for this. And then it just happened. Well, a lot of people would listen and say, of course, I want to help people. And of course, things are easier when money isn't involved, but that's not very realistic. So, no, um, no, it's not. And for you even, I would say, you know, when you opened up the Bigram Studios, there was not competition in Chicago. Now there's a booming boutique fitness industry. There's other hot yoga studios. It can be difficult, I think, to turn your passion into your job sometimes because it takes the passion out of it. Have you found over the years of running the yoga studios that were supposed to be somewhat of a release that they've created their own work and money issues? Oh, yeah. You know it. And um, (laughs) I've had those challenges. But here's another challenge. If you open up a business that's, you know, hot as a pistol for a while, and, you know, you might delude yourself into thinking you're a smart business person. And then when the competition comes, you realize, whoa, this is the real deal. And that's when the metal is tested. And so, yeah, there have been plenty of adventures in this super saturated boutique fitness market. But um, so far, so good. And it's still a passion and a release as opposed to just a different kind of challenge. Very much so. And, you know, if a business has its own near-death experiences, uh, the people who work there and, and run it, they, you know, I've had so much gratitude towards uh, these studios and this community and, and all of it over the past few years because I realized, boy, I was a young man when I started this. I I took a few things for granted, but now I really appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. So you're about 15 years into the balancing of being a lawyer and running yoga studios, and you start to read into some of the reasons why lawyers tend not to be happy, and and people are so confused by why um, one of the most wealthy professions there is is full of unhappy people. And by combining your lawyer brain and your yoga brain and tapping into the mindfulness and the spiritual health that you use in the studio and bringing it outside, you created a talk that you do at your studios and do for fellow lawyers. Um, and I think anybody listening who's in a competitive and ambitious field will be able to relate, lawyer or not. 
Um, but what was the study or what was the moment that you decided that this was information that you needed to take to other people? Well, my life, my, my law school housemate committed suicide and his widow told me about the misery and depression that he had in his final months and years. And I was blown away. I, I, I didn't, I was not aware. And I realized that this is probably a problem going on. It's pervasive because I remember not feeling so good myself when I was practicing full time. And, um, I just had this instinct, oh, I wonder besides just teaching hot yoga, uh, what I might be able to do for lawyers and, and professionals to relieve them from some of the suffering. And I started bouncing around in the literature. I thought I <clears throat> could find stuff, stuff to put together and put together a program. And then I struck gold. There were these psychologists at the University of Pennsylvania who were looking at this very issue through a new lens, and they dubbed it the paradox of money losing its hold. Why is the industry making the most money? Uh, have an industry helping people get out of the industry because there's so many people. Uh, right. Everybody's refugees. a recovering lawyer. That's what, <laughs> right. the, the sports world is full of recovering lawyers who've turned into hmm. agents or writers or, yeah. And so when they really looked into it with what we've now, hey, look, we've, we've learned more about the human brain in the last 15 or 20 years than the 2,000 years that preceded it. It's wild. I mean, some of it, we're figuring it out with billion-dollar equipment. But some of it we're just doing with good old Sherlock Holmes-like deductions and uh, simple scientific uh, uh, surveys, figuring it out piece by piece. And what they found out about lawyers is their brains are constantly in an adversarial posture. And when the human brain is constantly, you know, bent knees in a crouch ready to tackle or be tackled, it tends to fall into a few cognitive traps that you're not aware of when it's happening unless you know the signposts to look for or somebody can help you get out of those traps. And when you fall into those traps, it, it, it's like it drains your phone battery. It just, it just drains you, drains your confidence, your courage, your morale, your hopes. And, you know, it's rainy days. It's a, it's a bummer. Well, and it's interesting because it's understandable why lawyers would have an adversarial brain. So much of what they do is, you know, debate and back and forth and fighting for their side. But in, uh, with social media the way it is, with the elections, with even sports debate shows, everything is sort of now uh, set up to be adversarial. You're you're arguing with people that you don't even know across the world about things that sometimes you don't even know anything about just because the way the anon anonymity of it is set up allows you to do so. So we've sort of all become adversarial a lot of the time in ways that we never were before. A world full of lawyers. <laughs> Great. Well, I've already got a whole family full of lawyers, so... <laughs> You know, I, I I never took a psych course in my life. So I spent the whole season, I spent three or four months putting in some hours, reviewing the material, working on my presentation, trying to get it to almost a stand-up act because I knew if you want to get lawyers' attention and give them good news, you have to, like, catch their attention. So um, over the time I was learning it and over the time I was presenting it the first year, I noticed exactly what you said. It's not just lawyers. The 2016 election, everybody was in this adversarial mode. So the cognitive traps are pretty easy to understand. Um, one is, and I think a lot of people can associate with this, chronic or misdirected pessimism. You constantly think the glass is half full mm. and it's ongoing. And often you're pessimistic about the wrong things. Right. And what we know about optimism and pessimism is if you're trying to um, run for office, win sports, or be a good business person, you have to approach all those with optimism. Optimism wins. It's a statistical fact. The optimist will win more than not. Right. The uh, positive the, mental uh, attitude thing. They say you have to put it in your head before you start. That's right. Steve Jobs had it. Ronald Reagan is famous for it. Uh, and even great athletes, you know, when they, when they share their inner thoughts about how they approach something, you realize, oh, all this preparation is to win, not to lose. Mm-hmm. And um, lawyers are the, a glaring exception because for a lawyer to be pessimistic is to be a professionally prudent person. You have to constantly scan the horizon and say, what could go wrong with this clause in the contract? What could go wrong when I go to mm -hmm. trial tomorrow? What could go wrong? What could go wrong? What could go wrong? And it becomes like a, a record that skips. And right, before you know it, you don't have any other questions. The devil's advocate approach. The devil's advocate. You always have yeah. to see the other side of, well, it could go right or... 
it could go terribly wrong. And the uh, devil's now riding shotgun with you wherever you go. I mean, it helps right. at work. But then when you go home and you're hanging out with your family, it's still on. That's poison. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so you have to know when it's right and when to deploy it. And you have to have the situational awareness to say, you know what? This is not helping. I need to flick that switch off. And yet there's, there's ways of recognizing it, ways of understanding it, and skills you can do to start, you know, letting, letting a little bit of that steam out of the kettle. Right. And I've talked on the podcast before about how they've actually discovered um, flexibility in the brain so that it changes with the way we use it. So if you are constantly negative, you are making the synapses to allow your negativity quicker and faster, and it makes your brain find it easier. And if you're constantly positive, you do the opposite. You make the synapses to happiness and gratefulness uh, quicker and smoother and easier to access. So if you are chronically pessimistic, you're actually only making yourself more pessimistic with each passing day. And, and they call it flexible pessimism. Be flexible, be pessimistic when you need to be, and then, and then back out. So you, you just use the right word, flexibility. And you need both. You need, to be, you need to be optimistic. You need to be pessimistic in their appropriate times. You can't just live one or the other. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the three traps. What, is, what are the two others? Well, let me say this. I'll tell you the easiest escape from that trap. Okay. If, if, you're, if your arrow is tilted a little bit towards pessimism and it's chronic and you just want to nudge it back towards center at least, there is a empirically validated technique that hundreds of thousands of people have used it and it works. And it's, it's summarized as three W's. What went well? Hmm. They advise for best results that you keep some sort of notebook or diary somewhere smart where every day you can stop for a minute and say, what went well today? You don't have to win a gold medal in the Olympics. It can be, I held the door for somebody and they smiled and we had the funniest 24 seconds together. That's a nice positive. And if you write that down three times every day for a few weeks, your pessimistic effect will be neutralized. Why? Because we have lizard brains still. We have lizard impulses. And if you walk into a room with white floors and somebody left, a, say, a black belt on the floor off to the side, you walk into the room and you notice that belt out of your peripheral vision, there's a part of your laser brain that says, I think a snake might be over here. And you have to look <laughs> over and say, oh, that's a belt. But your brain is constantly poised for something negative to happen. It's like when we, our ancestors used to walk out of caves in the morning going, am I going to get something to eat or am I going right. to get eaten? And so... That just tilts you just a little bit off center. And so this what went well thing, if you, if you write for two weeks and you flip through the pages and you see all the things that happen to you that are awesome, it just neutralizes it. And you don't even have to keep a diary. I sit down at my dinner table with my family. I see the kids after school, after homework. I say, hey, man, what went well today? You yeah. talk about the good things that day. It works. And that's part of those, those, those synapses because you are then training your brain that's to go right. to the other direction. Yeah. That's just um, like an athlete would run drills for agility, sidesteps, the whole thing. That's what you're doing literally with the machine of a brain. All right. So that's our pessimism trap. What's okay. Our next trap? Second cognitive trap. It's got a long, it's a mouthful, but I'm going to, I'll give you an image and you'll immediately understand what it is. So it's described as low decision latitude, high stress ecosystems. And what I do in my speeches is I pay, play a short clip of uh, Lucille Ball in the chocolate factory, mm-hmm. trying to get the chocolates into the box. I don't know if you've seen this video, but the gifts mm-hmm. are out there. And it shows, if you see her and they're, they're, the belt is speeding up and she can't get the chocolates into the box, a lot of people are living lives like that right now. And so if you look at the uh, name of the trap, low decision latitude means Lucy cannot step away from the belt and check her iPhone and see what her friends are texting her right now. She's got to do whatever she's doing right now. She has no, she has no choice at the moment. And then the high stress ecosystem means, you know, get to getting or things are going to start falling apart here. And we can do that in crisis moments. But now the way social media and the world is been nudging us along, we're constantly chronically in crisis mode. And now the human brain has trouble discriminating between real emergencies and not so real emergencies. And that's, that's, that's dulling our edges. It seems like the ability to be uh, accessible at all times can be great and also a trap. Yeah, there, there's some uh, handcuffs there. So how do we deal with that? 
And and well, I can, would imagine for you, some people it's it's constant and others not quite as constant. Well, there's a lot of choice here. I mean, look, you can quit your job and go join yoga studio. <laughs> <laughs> your stress will drop and you'll get out of that neighborhood. <laughs> but chances are, whatever you're going to do in life, you're going to have some stress. You're going to try and make money. You're going to try and distinguish yourself. you got to you got various duties to yourself and other people. It's a stressful world. As a matter of fact, all of the people chiming in on this, whether it's psychologists or philosophers or neurologists, they're all using the same words. And the best one I heard most recently uh, on a New York Times op-ed piece was a professor of philosophy who said, we need to stop breaking this down piece by piece and just step back and, and everybody recognize that to be a human in the 21st century is to be in a state of constantly being dumped on mm-hmm. avalanche data, stimuli, video screens, duties just keeps coming. And so, you know, there's this crisis mode. How do I deal with this avalanche happening? There's a really cool story here, a great study that happened in Sweden. Volvo needed another factory to make cars. And some of the people in the management had an enlightened idea. They said, what if we built a factory that put out almost as many cars or as many cars, but instead of concentrating uh, the maximization of cars, why don't we maximize the happiness and health of the people making the cars and we'll get a win-win. And so what they did is they went to the factory workers and said, you got a choice. Say you're, Say you're Sarah who works on the tires and all day long, nine to five or whatever your shift is, every time the car comes along, you pick up the tires, you put them on the studs and you pull out the uh, drill and go, and you attach all the tires and Sarah is tire person. And what they're saying to you is if you come to this new factory, you won't be solo in one spot. You can join a team of eight to 11 other factory workers. And every time the chassis rolls out, all of you swarm it and maybe you're going for the tires today and you get them. But in the next car that comes along, you go for the tires and you realize, Oh, Bob got the tires. I'll be windshield now. And then you kind of like a beehive swarm all over the thing and get it done. The people who went to the new factory called in sick less, had higher productivity, lasted at the job twice as long, had less heart disease. I mean, you name it all good. Here's the astonishing thing from that study. The people who stayed in the factory, the Sarahs at the tire spot who stayed in their jobs, also called in sick less, also increased Mm. their productivity, also had less cardiovascular disease. Why? Because they were given a choice. They had a subjective Mm. belief that if they wanted to, they they could go to something else. Even though their life hadn't changed one iota, they had the same job, same everything. They reframed their subjective outlook on what it was and that was like a Jedi mind trick. It just opened it up. That's fascinating. So I, I suppose so the you, only... You right, have to only, create more choice. I'm sorry. Right, the ahead. only fail then there would be someone who feels truly stuck, right? They don't feel like they have a choice. And they, you know, because we all have friends who complain about their jobs. And by year four, you're like, okay, either stop <laughs> complaining and right. stay there or find a new job. Like, I don't want to hear about it anymore, right? Um, but some well, of them are truly not in a position to leave, which then what do you tell them? You're trapped. So, right. so listen, right. what, so they're, what they're saying to you, what they're saying to you is that moment in the horror movie when somebody's back against the wall and here it comes. You know what I mean? Like, that's what they're in and that's horrible. But if, that, if you're in that for four years, what is that doing to your nervous system? I'm not even right. talking about your brain anymore. Right. I mean, how many pharmaceutical pills are you popping at this point? You have to have choice. You have to believe. It doesn't even matter if it's a real choice. You can even fake yourself out. Somehow you have to create a choice that, oh, I have a choice in this job or I have to leave this job and have find choice elsewhere. But there has to be a choice. And if you're a person in position of power, it's incumbent upon you to help the people with whom you work to find choices when they feel themselves trapped. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's interesting, too, because if you are somebody who has the, the power to empower your employees, you'll get better out of them if you give them choices, even if they're minor, even if it's just a way of reframing what they do. According to the current science, you're an, you're an enlightened leader if you can start pulling that off. Huh. And sometimes it's just simple, simple, simple stuff. I mean, for instance, as a young lawyer, young lawyers really get trapped in this, and so do factory workers and nurses. Nurses really suffer from this low-choice latitude thing. 
the way the hospital structured, they're running around like automatons, checking off lists and meeting with people, but they're out of their minds. It's just so demoralizing. And uh, lawyers, you know, they go into a conference room for months and just review documents stacked up to the ceiling, and they feel like they can't get out of the room. It's great if I, you know, if you're a partner and you're looking at the young lawyer, you say, hey, you know what, today you can do this or you can do that. This is like a two-week vacation. This is good. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. I, and I would say that from my own experience, having the option of what, like you have many things to do, but you get to decide when you do them is so much more freeing than there's someone telling you exactly what to do in micromanaging and it has to be right now and it's here and it's this. Feels There's a, the head of neuroscience at UCLA. His last name is Wybrow, W-H-Y-B-R-O-W. He believes, based on his life's work, that that sense of control, I get to choose what I'm going to do over the next few seconds, minutes, days, months of my life. Do I want to move to a new city? Do I want to move to a new job? Do I want to, whatever it is, he believes that this is as fundamental as food, shelter, and clothing. Hmm. You know, it's interesting because my friend was going to a life coach talking about, you know, figuring out if she was going to get a new job and the person was having her write down her happiest moments during the day and like little things that made her happy. So I started to think about it for a week. And in one week, the happiest time I had was when I had two hours and I went to Target and I mailed some stuff and then I went to Starbucks. And I was like, why am I so happy right now? And then I realized this because that two hours was not scheduled that I just had two hours and then I was like, oh, I guess I'll go run an errand then. Whereas most of my life is like at this time, at this date, at this hour, you have this to do. I would define that as the definition of productive mindfulness. You were mindful of what makes you happy and now you are more likely going forward to steal a little happy minutes, moments, hours like that. And, you know, your portfolio of happiness starts to expand. Right. Yeah. And, and there are other things that will make you happy. You got to find those too. Part of it, too, is just being aware of that we have a choice and that the daily choices that we make affect it. I think a lot of people are not particularly aware of their own role in their happiness, right? It's just slogging along and presuming that what's, what comes up is what they're stuck with because they don't get it, that they can change the way their brain functions by making choices. It, it's a passive – it's a very passive engagement, yeah. and it, it, it tends to stick in uh, and, and, um, childhood and adolescence, and it starts to just – you get this idea that this is the way it is, and it's beautifully shown to be false. Sometimes people have near-death experiences, and they see the light, and all of a sudden, it's almost like their personality, like someone waved a magic wand over them. It's like, no, they just broke through all the BS, and now they see it for what it is, and they're grateful, and all of that, that crud fell off their psyche. Hmm. What's the final trap? Win-loss horizons. So for the athletic world out there, you can understand this. You're stepping out onto the pitch, and you know 90 minutes from now, 48 minutes from now, whatever your game is, there's going to be a winner, there's going to be a loser. And you're in the brain set. Your, your adversarial mind is, i got to get in there, and I'm either going to win or I'm going to lose. And it really excludes win-win opportunities, which are everywhere, as long as you just open your eyes and look for them, you know? And um, this win-loss mentality has a particular way, for instance – when it comes to lawyers, say you're a litigator and you're representing people and you're fighting all day. There's all kinds of disputes, even if it's commercial, even if it's civil, it's still, you know, you're still, you're still brawling. And um, your client is facing some sort of potential loss. Maybe it's bankruptcy and they have a sense of deep, you know, underneath it all. Maybe the, the people in the suits won't show up, but there's a sadness. There's a, a loss impending. Or maybe someone has trespassed on your rights and you're angry, like someone stepped on your lawn and, you know, you want to seek redress. Um, that sadness, that angry stuff, as a lawyer, it drips, drips, drips into your filter all day long. You're dealing with it all day long and it's in there. And you, if, if you want to ignore it, whatever. If you want to take drugs or alcohol to numb it, whatever. You got to recognize it. And the best way to... Uh, counter this negative slow drip is to find your native force, your deepest superhero kind of power. And the wonderful thing, the most wonderful thing I've discovered is about 15 or so years ago, these guys at University of Pennsylvania and University of Michigan conducted a three-year survey of all cultures going back to pre-Bible. And they looked at 
right up to, to today, to Pokemon, the whole Pokemon culture. And they identified what they called 24 universals. These are the virtuous, awesome things about humans that all cultures over all time have prized. These are not the things like I want to get rich or I want to win the Super Bowl. Those are great things and those are great achievements, but more the things that get you there properly. These are the kind of things that when your child is born and you're at the hospital, these are the things you wish for them. And there are, you know, there's wisdom, and courage and self-regulation, which is a huge problem now. Look, mindfulness, you want to break it down? Mindfulness is attention and attitude. And paying attention, regulating what you're paying attention to is hard. They have these things, these people have their whole army of them. They're called the attention merchants. And they're online and they're snapping their fingers right in front of your face going, look here, look here, look here. So when you and do when you a, actually a Google... find out that those people's jobs are like if you've ever read a story about how specific those things are and how they're targeted, it makes you kind of angry that they get you. Does, like it makes oh, me annoyed when I read. It's the same way when I read about how processed food people find the exact amount to like make you want to keep eating something but never get full but want to keep eating it. It makes me never want to eat those things again because I'm like, you're tricking me. That's how I feel about and, those people snapping at me on the Internet. I'm like, you got me. I'm mad now. <laughs> and it's draining. It's draining. And, and, yeah. and when you when you do one Google search, you want to check something out. And for the next two weeks, every time you read the news, that stuff is on the right panel going bye, bye, bye. So. Um, the, and, and Steve Jobs said it best. He said, attention, paying attention means learning how to say no. And there's so many things to say maybe to or yes to. It's just pouring at you. You have to learn how to clear the decks and figure out what you want to pay attention to and just do that. And the best way to do that is to find what you love from so deep. They, it's, it's called native force. So for instance, Okay, there's a test that the scientists have. It's empirically validated. It's accurate. And it's 15 minutes long. I know there's a lot of personality testing out there, but this one's been taken by millions of people. Everybody who's been in the armed forces since 2006 has been taking it. They use it to distinguish who's got what skills to go out on special forces teams. You don't want seven guys with the same skills, deep, deep skills. Uh, and and um, when, when it spits out the results, it, it ranks your 24 strengths. And then if you look at the top five and you just think about them for a few moments or a few days, like I, I had the experience described in the literature, it was, as if I was, it was as if I was looking into the mirror for the first time. I had a shock of recognition. Hmm. So my three character strengths were love of learning, kindness, and humor. And the speech that I give to the lawyers and to the corporations and the high school kids was based on a love of learning. I deep dived into the literature for months. Uh, it was kind. I was trying to help people not suffer so much. And it's full of humor. I get people laughing so I can churn the whole wheel when I'm giving presentation. And when it comes out of me and when your strengths come, if you identify them and they come out of you, you can tell your voice goes up. Your energy goes up. People try to get in your way from expressing it. And it's like you knock them over. Even if you're like a, a quiet person, you find yourself taking charge. You sleep better. You start to radiate. People are attracted to you. It's just all kinds of good things happen. So I, I've been, for the past two years, nudging people to take a test, to start meditating on their signature strength groups and start consciously deploying them. Even if you don't do it at work, for instance, if you do it on the weekends, the science says that's enough. By the time you show up to work your job Monday to Friday, nine to five, your, your batteries and gas tanks are full up and you can do all these. Pessimism isn't so chronic anymore. Low choice latitude disappears because you start seeing choices everywhere in your life. It's just good. What's the test called? Via, V-I-A, Survey of Character Strengths. V as in Victor? Victor, I-A, V-I-A. All right. And it's, it's, both at the United, it's both at the University of Pennsylvania Psychology uh, Department, but I think there's also just a VIA website. You could take the test right there. It's wonderful. Huh. So those are the three traps. Yeah, exactly. Those are the three traps, and those are how you work through them. Um, and that's works. I mean, this was specifically for lawyers, but you found that because, you know, the rest of the world is becoming so adversarial that those traps that tend to uh, stop up the adversarial mind are affecting all of us. Um, you also found that some, some psychology nerds have sort of 
figured out the key to happiness and they've they've limited it to five specific things. So tell me what those are. Okay, so the past 2,000 plus years since Aristotle, all the great minds have trying to identify and define happiness. And it's slippery. Nobody's ever pulled it off. They, they, they find aspects of it. But what they found now, it's, a, it's basically a, a five-variable ag- algorithm, PERMA, positive emotions, which most of us consider when they think of happiness, just feeling good, laughing, that kind of stuff. Engagement. Is your brain, like, dead? Are you at the opening door of a big box store going, hello, may I help you? Like, you just don't care about your job? Or are you totally psyched about what you're doing? You want engagement. And the highest level of engagement is known by the scientists as the flow state. Athletes achieve flow state. Musicians achieve flow state. Daydreamers. I think the two hours that you had all to yourself where you're bouncing around to Starbucks and whatnot, you're probably closer to flow than you know. (laughs) Um, Relationships. Positive relationships. Do you get along with people moment to moment? Do you hold the door and smile? But also, do you have a 4 a.m. friend in your life? If, if the deal went down at 4 a.m. and you were stuck and bad news was happening to you, can you pick up your phone, call somebody at 4 a.m., and they answer the phone and help you? If you have somebody like that in your life, you will live healthier and longer. Then there's meaning. The M is for meaning in life. It's not really like, what does the universe mean? It means I'm living and doing something for p- beyond, outside myself. It could be helping out in a community. It could be doing something at work for everybody. It, it can be just taking care of a loved one, taking care of a child, some meaning where you're just not always living for yourself. And then achievement, your career, um, goals you set, take small steps towards them and figure it out. And when you achieve them, pat yourself on the back and say, you yeah, know, I did it and start another one. And uh, the relationships one and the meaning one are found over and over and over again in what are known as blue zones. This is where an in, in, inordinate amount of people in an area are living way past 100 years old. And everybody's going, okay, what's going on here? And if you don't have good relationships, you're not living for your, beyond yourself. You know, your, your clock is limited. So and, those blue and zones, it's because it, they've found that those things tend to be those places tend to have people who have all of these elements of PERMA? Yeah, they're flourishing. They call it flourishing like a, like a bed of flowers. Everything's working. Nothing's holding you back. Nothing, nothing's putting you into the wheelchair early. Nothing's putting you into an early grave. You're just, you're just cruising along. You got water and sunlight. You're living large. And, and presumably a community, because that's a big part of it too then. Yeah, I mean, Okinawa off Japan and Ikarai off of the coast of Greece, they call them the islands where people never die because <laughs> everybody's living the 105, 110, 110. And, uh, and living your character strength, finding your signature strengths lifts all five variables, P, E, R, M, and A. All the things that scientists say make you happy go up when you're living your strength. Hmm. So you would argue that if someone looks at their PERMA and they said, this is what I'm missing, uh, they could, they could, intentionally go out and seek that thing, but they also might discover it merely by taking that test, figuring out their strengths, uh, trying to employ those, and then seeing if that brings that to them. Just like an auto mechanic would pop the hood, look and see what's working and what's not, and just fix it up a little bit. Yes. And and it's a bold uh, new era. If this happened earlier, I think this would be headlines, but there's so much news coming out. This is All this stuff is getting lost. But if you want to get past a lot of the suffering in your life, if you want to live healthy and great, the science is there now. People just have to do it. I felt like when I looked around and I realized this stuff was going on, I checked all the continuing legal education databases around America going, surely somebody's speaking about this. And nobody is. Nobody. Well, and the the relationships one is interesting because I I think I've mentioned it on the pod before. I can't remember, but um, I'm fascinated by the stories that are coming out about loneliness now. And there was one researcher that said the loneliness epidemic is a greater health threat than obesity right now in our country because uh, the things that we have created to connect ourselves are, in fact, making it easier for people to be disconnected and to never interact in person. And so there's this incredible generation of people suffering from chronic loneliness that they think is actually 
you know, more severe in terms of raising the risk of death for health reasons than things that we would physically think of. So relationships is huge. And for some people, I feel like that might be the toughest one for them to feel like they could go out and change. Mother Teresa said loneliness is the biggest problem in human history. Uh, If you're put into in prison, if you're put into isolation, you age rapidly. It took John Gotti down when he's in his finale. Um, Loneliness, the parliament or or the British government has just proposed or appointed somebody to be the minister of curing loneliness. They think loneliness is a huge Mm -hmm. problem for millions of people, especially old people, older people. And they're actually putting old people homes attached to nursery schools. So the old people and the the little kids get along because there's something about those two generations when they're in space with each other, everybody gets lifted. The kids Mm -hmm. understand the older people and the older people understand the kids. And we're all just caught in the middle. Like we're watching a tennis match back and forth. They get along so well. And uh, I think, I think the, when I give the, when for of all the audiences I've given it to the most effective it's been, it's been in front of the high school students, high school freshmen have the most adversarial minds I've encountered. Think about it. The bell rings, you leave your desk, you go out in the hallway and there's hundreds hundreds of kids around your age and your lizard brain is immediately scanning so much stuff. Are there allies? Are there enemies? Is someone going to pull a prank on me? Am I about to get humiliated? I'm a teenager. I got a zit on my forehead. I mean, can you imagine all the things? So when I show the slides, the one slide from the high school presentation that gets gasps, audible gasps, as I put a picture I found on the internet, it shows a girl, a teenage girl looking down at her phone and making a face like she's going to throw up. And behind her, slightly fuzzy in the background, are two girls her age with their hands over their mouths giggling to each other. And what the teachers and the school tell me is, we walk through the halls and see that every day. And that that what you just mentioned about using the phones and being lonely, there's a distance that happens when you're not face-to-face. And adolescents can, you know, the, the treachery and the meanness is easier when you just hit send. And so totally. civility yeah. has eroded a little bit. And all this whole generation of kids are now on the defensive. They're, ad, they're in adversarial crouch postures from all the stuff that's coming their way. Well, and all the studies talk about how the um, physiology of our brains allows us to read other people when we say something to them. And when we don't see them, when it's a, when it's across a phone or an email, uh, we don't physically feel the reaction to what we've done, positively or negatively. Um, and my colleague Kate Fagan in her book actually wrote about the same thing happens with um, with needing to be comforted. So if you talk to someone on the phone or you see them in person, your brain reacts differently to when you're texting with them, even if the words are exactly the same. It does not fire the same things in your brains to receive an email or a text as it does to hear a voice or talk with someone in person. And so it's really drastically affecting the mental health of students, especially college students who are away from family and friends, uh, because they presume that those connections electronically are enough of a replacement, but they're actually not. And they're not serving the same person because physiologically it doesn't affect them in the same way. Yeah, the empathy circuits are sitting on the bench. They're not playing. Yeah. And, and, and we've all had miscommunications, misinterpretations. It's so easy to read a text and get angry, even though the other person was trying to say something funny. You know what I mean? Like, so, right. That's why we always brain. need sarcasm text. We, we haven't figured out the sarcasm font. Everyone's still working on it. <laughs> these, these kids, what happens with the neuroscientists say is between the ages of 13 and 25, what happens in the brain before it's fully set? is so wondrous and freakish. It's amazing we survive it. That's mm. how crazy it is. So while that's going on inside their skulls, they're having to navigate this stuff. Oof. Yeah, it's a lot. And we, since we didn't go through it, the older generation is not so nimble at, you know, walking it through and saying, this is how it goes, kids. So there's a major generation gap here on the uh, electronic side. Yeah, the one thing I've heard that's made me feel slightly better about what I feel is the impending doom of, of, you know, this generation and next and whatever in terms of technology is that we're like those people that are in, in a certain age where they remember before it and they're using it now are the worst because uh, they they don't know how to handle it. Whereas the next generation, because of all the pitfalls that we're learning, will presumably find ways to fix and react. And so hopefully it won't continue to get worse and worse, but there will be fixes put in place. We're just in that transition phase where we're learning 
as we go. And that makes everything seem much more treacherous and dangerous. And it sure. feels like something other generations have gone through, but we're kind of caught in that middle ground, which makes I, like I'm scared for my friends who have kids. <laughs> You're right. It's like the industrial revolution, but instead yeah. of getting smog and choked and getting lung cancer from all the coal and stuff, it's uh, it's an electronic sort of, um, you know, pollution. Right. So what's uh, tell me about good finales. This seems like a good time to discuss good finales and why they're important. Right. So my favorite, uh, you know, as a wise ass, my favorite research that I read about um, shows that when you're doing something and it's coming to an end. So let's say it's a let's say it's a lawsuit and it was long and it was rough and, you know, the feelings got hurt or whatever it was. When you see the light at the end of the tunnel, it's important to be mindful that the end is here. And that a little bit of positivity sprinkled at the end goes a long way because the way we remember things is even if it was a long, horrible experience, if it's got a good ending, you'll remember it as better than it was. Mm-hmm. So they did a, um, a study of 700 plus colonoscopy patients. And for half of the patients, they told the doctor to do exactly what he or she always does. For the other half of the patients, they said when the procedure is over, Leave the tube undisturbed for 60 seconds and then remove it. And a week later, getting people to go back to colonoscopies is difficult because of the nature of it. So people, we're not getting colon cancer just because people aren't going to the screenings because they just don't want to go through that stuff, right? So what they found a week later is when they asked people in a quick survey, are you likely to go back next year and do it when it's scheduled? The people in whom the tube was left one minute longer for no reason, were twice as likely to come back as people for whom the procedure ended promptly. Because even though it was an uncomfortable uh, procedure, those who experienced the last 60 seconds without any agitation had a better memory of the experience. Yeah, the uh, podcast regulars will know that uh, I had Kevin Brilliant, who's a behavioral psychologist on who works for the Bulls, and he said the same anecdote, which was the nice. idea of the peak peak end theory, which is that people will remember the climax of the event and the end. So if you leave a Bulls game and it takes you an hour to get out of the parking lot, that has a much more serious effect than they might consider when they're thinking of the game experience, right? It doesn't end when the game ends. It ends when you get home. Uh, and so, yeah, the, the, the colonoscopy theory is an easy one to remember and a poignant one because people will certainly <laughs> think hard about why anyone would say it was more or less enjoyable. Um, but so how does that relate to the traps that trap us up or to PERMA? How do we try to figure out how to make that, you know, that positive finale happen? Well, I think it has to do with the P in PERMA, the positive emotions and positive feelings. Uh, it stirs up the right part of the soup there. And uh, that's a horrible analogy, but you get what I'm saying. (laughs) Um, And, you know, if you can go through life, you know, people like this. I actually, Sarah, from what I hear from Kylie, you are this person. But wherever (laughs) they go, they're scanning the room and they understand the room and they make people feel better about themselves. Uh, Whether it's the new haircut or let me hold the door for you or you drop something, let me pick that up for you or Sometimes people are just sad and they want somebody to listen to. But when you can read people's states and you can surround yourself with folk that you're serving and they're happy to be around you and you're lifting them up. And part of that repertoire is recognizing, OK, this is a finale. This is a good move. I'm, I think I'm going to go out and buy flowers. I think I'm going to invite everybody over for a pasta dinner. I think I'm going to do whatever it is, even if it's a symbolic gesture. You're lifting everybody's game. You're taking everybody out of this epidemic of crappy feelings and crappy adversarial adversarial brain. Yeah. You know, it's fascinating how much control we have over this stuff, but I feel like the people who will listen to this and will be like, right on, yeah, yeah, are kind of already on the way. And the difficulty is to get the people who have decided that things, that either this is hippy-dippy or it's fluff or you know, it doesn't work. How do you get those people to listen? And have you come across either in your lawyers or, or people that you're probably not as likely in your studio, but more likely in the lawyers, people who just seem so adverse to the idea of diving deep into their own brains on this stuff? Yeah, no, I, I gave a speech on Wall Street. And right after it, uh, a great guy came up and said, I've been the head of the intellectual property group here for 25 years. And you just said in an hour and a half what I've been saying for two decades. And you know what? I don't think half the people in the room heard what you just said. They just don't. They're just not ready to hear it. Yeah. So you you hope to expose as many people you can and for whom the light bulb goes off, 
great. Let's do it. And it's not like I'm BSing you. I'm handing you simple skills, and all you do is try it, and you feel the results, which are the ones I use are kind of instantaneous. I'm not, I'm not talking about the long-haul stuff. If you feel a little pop in your step or you sleep better, you get along with your loved ones a little bit, why wouldn't you keep doing that? Right, right. Seems like a no-brainer, but... <laughs> no pun intended. Yeah, yeah there you go. Um, <laughs> well, it was awesome to talk to you, John. I'm going to have to come to one of your uh, mindfulness talks here in Chicago. Um, but this was really, this was really interesting. I'm always fascinated by, uh, trying to better understand the choices that we make, the little things every day that we don't even realize are setting ourselves up for, for happiness and gratitude or disappointment. So, uh, thanks for taking some time to talk to me. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thanks, Sarah. The Spanish Inquisition is part of ESPN Nation, brought to you by Dr. Pepper. College football is back, and so are the fans. Return to glory with Fansville by Dr. Pepper, the one fans deserve. That's what she said. So this week's That's What She Read is actually two stories. Um, One of them I already planned, but then after talking to John, it reminded me of a, a story that I read. And I think I mentioned a different story about loneliness on the pod once, and if I didn't, my apologies, but this one's good too. Um, it's in New York Times from uh, January 18th by Anna Goldfarb. It's called How to Maintain Friendships. And someone sent it to me and very kindly said, this is you to a T and all the different ways that are described to make sure that as you get older and you settle into your job and your social life and your marriage and everything else that you don't lose that giant pack of friends that you had. Um, usually around 25 is when you have the most social connections and it trickles off and um, – a lot of people get incredibly lonely. And so it was sent to me is a nice statement on how I keep all of our friends together and make sure that, you know, we're surrounded by each other as often as possible and even let each other know when we're busy and we wish we could see each other and can't. Um, but the, the worthwhile reading of it is for those of you who maybe aren't as successful at that and understanding um, the perils of loneliness and the importance of making time, cultivating routines, you know, showing up when it actually counts, acknowledging when someone makes an effort to see you, um, and even acknowledging when you're just too busy. And and then once you say, I'm too busy and I can't do it, um, really examine it and figure out if the choices that you're making are making it impossible for you to have friends and make relationships or whether you could actually change your schedule and still fulfill those parts of your life. Because um, it is way more important than we've ever really recognized to have meaningful relationships. So again, it's the New York Times. It's called How to Maintain Friendships by Anna Goldfarb. The other story, um, I read it maybe two years ago, maybe three or four. And um, I was reminded of it in talking to uh, one of my producers at ESPN. And uh, I thought I would reshare it because it is sort of a, an interesting way of looking at why some people of a certain age, millennials, maybe a little bit older too, are unhappy. And it's about the expectations that we have for ourselves versus the reality. It's called Why Generation Y Yuppies Are Unhappy. It's on the website waitbutwhy.com. And it's from September 9th of 2013 by Tim Urban. So if you Google uh, Why Generation Y Yuppies Are Unhappy, hopefully it'll come up. But if you also, I I think I got to it because I remember it had unicorns. (laughs) Um, Anyway, part of it is essentially the idea that the generation, uh, the baby boomers generation, uh, were raised by the GI generation, the greatest generation. They, they fought in the Great Depression, or sorry, they fought in World War II. They lived through the Great Depression, and they were mostly thinking about economic security and how to be practical. It was a great achievement to have a house and to have a family. And because of that, they raised those parents in the baby boomer generation with economic stability and hoping for better for themselves so that baby boomers then, you know, had this great economic prosperity and they were optimistic and they, and they really felt great about, you know, what could be coming next. So they raised their own kids with the idea that they shouldn't just want economic stability, but they should want more and that they could have more. And so they should follow their dreams, which led to all of these stories and articles about how everybody should live their passion and follow their dreams, which is not realistic because not everybody is good at their passion. Not everybody will follow their dream. Not everyone's job is going to be the job they always dreamed of. And by telling everyone that that's what you should have, you are setting up a ton of people for disappointment. So it's a really interesting uh, story and it uses fun little graphics with unicorns and everything else and talks about how unfortunately a lot of people um, in the certain range that's a baby boomer kid millennial maybe a little older is uh, 
unhappy because their expectations is that they're they're super special and amazing and everything that they should have should be better than just good. And uh, hopefully, if that's you and you're struggling through this, you will read it and maybe feel a little better about it and have a better approach to reality versus expectation. So it's called Why Generation Why Yuppies Are Unhappy by Tim Urban on WaitButWhy.com. And thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs> 